everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Got an interesting uh, show lined up for you today. We're going to talk a little bit more about this shift more towards locally sourced lumber. I introduced this idea back in my predictions for 2022. I've had a few questions that have come up that have touched on this again, and some world news that's happening with this war in Ukraine that is really driving home this point that locally sourced wood may be the direction the entire industry is heading. So call that our main future. Certainly we've got some talk about rising lumber prices again, and some talks about just trees as crops. Think of trees like corn. And I've got a few questions to um, answer from um, the community here. So uh, speaking of the community, again, thank you to everybody who continues to send in questions, who continues to uh, give me stuff to talk about on this show. I remember when I started this show, I was worried that, you know, could I continue to have topics? Would people find it interesting? And I continue to get great feedback from all of you and great questions from all of you. So thank you for continuing to do this. Please continue to send those questions. You can submit questions via the contact form at lumberupdate.com or just email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. Thanks so much for that. And, and again, thank you to those who sponsor the show over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lumber Update is where you can go to sponsor the show for a dollar a month or a dollar a year, however you want to do it. Every little bit helps. And I thank you so much for everyone who continues to support the show. So let's, let's kind of move on to industry news. And unfortunately, the thing that's really topping everybody's list right now is this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I started getting uh, emails and questions about this back before the invasion actually happened. And there was a lot of saber rattling going on. And is it going to happen? Is Putin going to pull the trigger? And a lot of concern about what this would do to the lumber market. So those of you, some of you may not know, Russia is actually the largest exporter of wood in the world. They also uh, comprise a very large portion of the plywood market. You think of Baltic birch plywood, that a name originates because it came from the areas around the Baltic Sea. Yes, Russia is the largest exporter of lumber in the world, um, but you have to think of this in the types of products. And, and certainly we're seeing the price, the prices, the prices spiking in the lumber futures market. But remember what the lumber futures market really represents. That is your construction lumber, your two by fours, your two by type material. And that that hurts. That absolutely hurts for people trying to build homes. And with the huge spike in home building and home renovations, all that is really hitting it at just the wrong time. And it continues to drive prices up to the point where we're looking at, you know, height of COVID type levels and maybe could even go higher. It's hard to say. It depends on how long this, this horrible thing in Ukraine continues to go on. But let's break this down. Just like when the lumber futures went crazy during COVID, a lot of the hardwood people were kind of saying, well, that doesn't really apply to us. We all expected, and I'm putting myself as we into this, seeing as I work for a company that really specializes in hardwoods. We all recognize that just by association, hardwood prices would go up. It's just the way things are. You know, the guy at the gas station on the corner raises his price, and the guy across the street raises his price, whether there's a reason to or not. Gas pricing going up during the Ukrainian conflict. One could say there's a similarity there. Um, you know, shortage of, of oil coming out of Russia could probably easily be off balance by somewhere else in the world, but lumber prices go up. Conflict causes the markets to rise to raise in price. It's just the way things are. Call it the, the mob mentality of the stock market and, and, and trading in general. 
So yes, we expect to see hardwood pricing climbing, but really these lumber price spikes we're seeing right now are in the lumber futures market, which is really referring to construction lumber. And if you look at that, you know, number one exporter on the globe, yes, Russia, that, that's, that's the role they serve, but what are they exporting? They're exporting softwoods and birch. So it's pretty much pine and birch. It's all whitewoods, in other words, and that's really what's coming out of those boreal forests of Russia. So this hits the construction lumber heavily because of the pine, hem, fur, not so much fur, but definitely that softwood material, that two by dimensional lumber that we're using construction. That's the majority of what they're exporting. The birch they're exporting, certainly some of it is in hardwood like lumber format, but most of that rolls into the birch plywood market. And Russia comprises 10% of the North American plywood market. Now where this really hurts people is shop plywood, right? Why are we using Baltic birch for more than anything else? You know, hardwood veneer plywood, it's not affecting too much because that's not what Russia is exporting. They're going after the shop plywood. That's primarily what they've always supplied. But when you think of the mainstay of the plywood market, of that, that shop quality plywood or shop grade plywood or just Baltic birch plywood, there's any number of different terms for that. That could be a bit of an issue. Now, where I draw the line or where I, or I should say where I get a little frustrated is in the plywood instance, the manufacturers are there in North America to offset that. Um, and the infrastructure and the capabilities are there, but just like that gas station raising its prices because the guy across the street raises prices, we're going to see an increase in plywood and shop grade plywood kind of everywhere. That... I want to say I'm not a big fan of because, you know, you may call it price gouging or war profiteering. There's all kinds of ugly terms for it. Certainly there are market demands driving it that way. Um, there are supply chain shortages and things that are can justify some increase in price, but just increasing shop plywood because the Russian stuff has become unavailable. I don't know. I don't sell plywood uh, other than the marine grade stuff, so it's hard to speak to it from a first-hand basis, but I am a consumer. Um, I do use plywood from time to time, so it's kind of hard to not get a little upset by this. Still, I do think that, God forbid, if the, if the conflict goes unresolved for a long time in Ukraine, I do think the market has the capability to pivot and take up that shortfall. And if there's any good that can be seen from this, it could be that possibly that 10% of Russian plywood that comprises the market will drop and be replaced by locally produced, wherever your local is, whether you're in Europe or whether you're in Australia or whatever, or in North America, there are manufacturers out there who can shift and can supply more shop grade plywood. So hopefully there will be less a reliance upon that 10%. We'll see that 10% the Russian plywood shrink and stay there because there's really no reason to continue to source that. We can produce a high quality shop grade plywood. It may not be made of birch, but there's any number of other white woods that would work just as well. And hopefully now with that void, with that 10% void due to I don't know what the proper term would be. I don't think you can call it embargo, but basically due to the shutdown of Russian exports, that void will drive some of these local manufacturers to up their game when it comes to the plywood market, the shop grade plywood. So while we're seeing spikes there, I'm hoping that will resolve itself somewhat quickly. Maybe I'm just being naive and optimistic, but I see that as an opportunity that really 
kind of dovetails nicely into this idea of sourcing locally. Um, as far as the hardwoods go, um, again, let's keep our fingers crossed that this whole thing gets resolved quickly. If it gets resolved quickly enough, I don't think we're going to see too much in the hardwood market. The hardwood markets are already elevated just on the heels of supply chain and labor shortages. But let's hope that you know, the conflict in the Ukraine is short-lived enough that it's not going to have an impact kind of by association on the hardwood market. So yes, lumber futures are up, but here again, like at the beginning of COVID, I don't think that's going to affect the hardwood market too much. Now, back at the beginning of COVID, we were hoping it wouldn't last very long. It stretched on for two years, and yes, that drove the hardwood market up. So we're going to pay very close attention to this. Mostly, let's just hope for a quick resolution because... Well, it's war. <laughs> Nobody wants that, especially this stupid conflict that's going on. Uh, saber rattling, it's its ridiculous. So there's my editorial um, comment on that. I don't think there's many people that would disagree with me on that. So moving on to um, some feedback. I actually got uh, a great voicemail from Bob Rosieski. I'm a big fan of Bob's, and uh, I want to play his uh, voicemail because he brings up a really good point. Uh, when I was talking about um, logs and splitting logs, and one of the listeners had written in saying he was having trouble spitting, splitting a pine log, I brought up some points, but Bob brought up a point that I forgot to mention, and it's a great one. Hey, Shannon, it's Bob. Hey, I was just listening to episode 69 and heard Kyle's question about splitting a pine log. Um, you made a lot of good points, but I think one thing you might have missed um, was that it was pine, and if it was a long log, what Kyle is probably dealing with isn't grain issues, it's knots. Um, I've split a little bit of pine uh, from our property, uh, white pine, and as long as it's clear, you can actually get it to split okay and, and work pretty nicely. But the problem is that a pine log typically branches, the tree branches so early, and there are just so many knots that those knots hold everything together and prevent you from splitting the log. So unless that section of log is absolutely clear of knots, it's going to be a nightmare to try and split because the knots just hold everything together. Outstanding point, Bob. I appreciate you um, sending in that voicemail. You guys might remember in the Silvicultural Systems episode, I was giving a, a, a use case of the Jack Pine Warbler and... Um, uh, the north, uh, the upper part of the mitten in Michigan, and how the jack pine, uh, they discovered that by letting the jack pine grow up taller, it was eliminating the habitat for the jack pine warbler. And this really speaks to Bob's point here. Softwoods branch very early and, and quite often. And this is certainly, there are going to be exceptions to this, but this is pretty widespread across softwood species. They um, immediately get those branches <clears throat> and it forms um, kind of protective underbrush because softwoods like to kind of grow in clumps. And the more they branch, kind of the bushier that little clump becomes and the more robust and stable they are against the wind and the elements and all that stuff. But once a softwood tree gets to be about two to three years old, it drops those lower branches. And generally from about the two to three foot mark down, it will all those branches will, will die and they eventually fall off. So then, of course, the tree continues to grow and the circumference of the trunk continues to grow, but there's still all of those knots formed by all those branches early on in its life that kind of act like glue to hold together those fibers. 
The same thing will happen as the tree, tree continues to grow older, you'll see some of those lower branches begin to drop off. Now, obviously this stops at a certain point. And if you go into a mature evergreen forest, you'll see a lot of the, the boughs start, you know, four, five, sometimes six feet off the ground. Um, that whole area from the, the major part of the bowl of that tree has, has all kinds of branching happen throughout its life. Then the branches fell off and different and additional layers of growth piled on top of that. So it's an excellent point that I didn't bring up. Those knots can cause real problems to keep that board from splitting cleanly. Next, from a feedback perspective, I got um, a, a note from Ben on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter, that's still a thing. People still use that. That linked to a discussion uh, on the idea of monoculture ecosystems. And there's a couple of people having a discussion on this Tumblr page about how um, lumber companies were replanting and it was coming coming off as very green and look how great we are to the environment. And really what they're doing is planting the single species so that they can then harvest it later for, um, you know, for their product, whatever that product would be. And in some instances, some spraying and other measures being done to prevent the growth of additional species in order to um, embrace the, the mono crop idea. And this was definitely being frowned upon in this particular thread. And it's, it's a point that's worth considering, and it kind of relates back to that silvicultural systems uh, episode, where there are systems that certainly encourage single species growth. And in that instance, if you have a plot of land that is specifically being grown for a specific product, and there is a particular species and age of species that does well for that, it does make sense to do that you know, monocrop idea. What we have to consider is long-term, what could be the problems for that? If you did that for seven, eight different rotations, however long that rotation is, in the case of pulp mills, it might be one or two years between harvest, sometimes even less than that. Uh, in the case of stud farms, where they're growing trees just to make studs, a lot of times those can be four and five year cycles, and then they harvest and start over. And again, embrace a clear cutting method because they want single species, single age, um, all harvested around the same time. Well, if you continue to do that over eight cycles, say five years per cycle over the course of 40 years, what would be the long-term impact of that on that particular plot of land, as well as the land surrounding that? And that's something that um, silviculturalists need to look at. And in many instances, when you look at these, these farms, they're not going out that far. They're not going that number of cycles. What they may do is have three or four cycles, and then that plot of land gets um, turned around and used for something else. Same idea in agriculture for crop rotation. You know, there are certain, um, uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We'll just say minerals added to the soil during the production of a specific crop. And after a while, the soil kind of gets played out and you need to rotate in a different plant that's going to replenish the soil chemistry and kind of rejuvenate the soil. Eventually, it will become played out for that secondary species. But now the primary species that was first planted may come back and will thrive in that instance. So this is this should be 
what's happening in a lot of instances, but it's not with, with tree farming, but it's not quite as obvious because the harvest cycles are much longer turnaround. You know, I can see a, a field of corn in my neck of the woods be corn one year and alfalfa the next year or beans the next year. And it comes back to corn like every third year. That's much more observable. Whereas if you are talking a five-year harvest cycle or a 10-year harvest cycle, that's not really obvious. You see the harvesting done and then maybe one or two cycles is observed of replanting the same monospecies. And then they step away from that. And what you will find is, is um, there will be species that couldn't that be planted over top of, I'm just going to go with the same term, played out ground. They can be planted over that played out ground, spaced differently. A different silvicultural system can be embraced that would embrace multiple species or different ages. In other words, the, the actual clearing method would have been changed. Instead of clear cutting, they would have moved to a shelter wood system and slowly phased out that original crop and another one would be brought in. So there are ways to very easily move from monocrop to polycrop. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but it is something to be concerned with. It's something we're looking at right now in a lot of the forests in Canada where long-term studies have shown western red cedar grows like a weed up there. But as silvicultural systems have been embraced to continue the health of that forest, the Alaskan yellow and the Douglas fir are competing and winning against the western red. And the kind of nature is, is taking over if the western red is to continue to, to um, prosper then additional silvicultural methods need to be taken in order to kind of outcompete the Douglas fir or Alaskan yellow. Or in some very large section of the forest, they're letting nature do its thing and letting the Douglas fir and Alaskan yellow take over and kind of push out the Western red. Now that means a shift, a shift in the market where a lot of Western red cedar is used for many, many different exterior products, Douglas fir and Alaskan yellow may be shifting and taking some of that market share because the Western red is, is kind of on the wane through, due to, I don't know, I don't know if we can say natural selection in the Darwinian sense, but that's the first term that comes to mind. If Western red is continued to thrive as a commercial product, then more monoculture concessions need to be embraced, but they have to be seriously monitored. So yeah, monoculture farming is something that a lot of people are concerned with. In a perfect world, I think you could embrace, I don't know what the term would be. The, the thing that comes to mind is like wild farming, where you, you don't necessarily plant in rows, you let nature do its thing. And, 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 and naturally, whatever occurs naturally is what you harvest. Unfortunately, I don't know whether that works in a world with 7 billion people where, you know, from a, from a food product perspective, we need huge amounts of grain and huge amounts of vegetables and things like that to feed the masses. And at the same time with home construction being like crazy, looking for a huge amount of stud material and huge amount of paper and pulp products, I'm not sure that you can just let nature do its thing. And I think a certain amount of monocrop ecology has to exist in order to produce the turnover rate needed in order to fill the demand of the market. Um, I could be way off here. I'm just thinking economically, it would be very difficult to suddenly change. I think we would run into massive, massive shortages, which would cause all kinds of political and socioeconomic upheaval and riots in the streets and all that crazy stuff that could happen. So I think we have to figure out a way to be okay 
with monoculture farming, as long as we continue to be very cognizant of what the long-term effects would be and how do we alter the plan before it becomes too late, in other words. And in other words, rotate that particular tree, that particular tree farm to something that's not going to play out the soil or it's going to replenish the soil to allow um, continued prosperity on that plot of land. <clears throat> so I, I was really interested in that. Thank you, Ben, for, for sharing that because it kind of played nicely into that silvicultural system episode I did. And it's a different take on it that we need to be aware of this. Um, monocrop ecology can be terrifying, but I think if done the right way, it can maximize the yield with rotation in mind. That's the, there's my synopsis of my rambling for the last 10 minutes. So let's, let's go on that theme and talk about buying locally. I brought it up in my prediction for 2022 that with global pressures around the world, with military conflicts, and this was well before the Ukraine even came around, I was thinking specifically of um, issues in like the Far East and, and uprisings in places in Africa, places in Myanmar, things like that, <clears throat> that make either the export or excuse me, import of a particular species difficult or unethical, um, or just the idea of um, environmental protection and sustainability of a particular species. Perhaps a species gets CITES listed and we need to back away from it as a product. All of this has put a lot of pressure on the exotic market and has made people look closer to home. And, you know, when I say exotic, as a, as a resident of North America, obviously I'm thinking of anything outside of North America. But, you know, what is exotic to me is domestic to an Australian or domestic to, um, you know, a, a Frenchman or something like that. So it's all, it's all relative based on where you are in the world. But we're seeing this across the globe where um, actually Australians come to mind since I brought that up, because obviously just based on the, the isolation of the continent of Australia, they've long had to kind of figure out how to make things work down there. But there's also long been a strong import practice um, just due to the fact that Australia is a harsh environment. And boy, the timber down there, I think it grew, it grows with like a steel backbone to it. Stuff is just crazy. But um, a podcast was brought to to my attention from Larry. Um, he wrote in a while ago and said, perhaps you listen to the Shop Stool podcast. I found the discussion in um, episode number 68 quite interesting, particularly that between minutes 44 and 52. And I'm going to link to this in the show notes and it's worth going and listening. First of all, great podcast. I've kind of dipped in and out of it from time to time, but this is a particularly good episode where they have brought in a furniture maker who kind of specializes in using like 10,000 year old gum. And they get onto a conversation about using native material. Now, due to the isolation of the island of Australia, there have long been talks and there's now political um, action being taken to protect the native trees and to prevent the logging of native trees. This has happened in other areas of the world. Uh, Great Britain has some pretty strict regulations on logging because here again is another example of an island and you have to be very cautious here because there's only so much room you can spread out. Plus the Australian species, for that matter, tree species, flora and fauna species are unique enough 
that it's something you need to be very cautious of. It's not like you can necessarily look to another part of the world, whereas like mahogany in Central America started to get played out, we were able to replant it in Fiji, or it's been able to grow nicely in Africa, or places further south in South America. A lot of the unique biodiversity of Australia is unique to Australia, and you're not finding that stuff outside of it. So rightfully so, there's been protective measures put against those, those native tim, uh, timbers. But what that's doing is causing a great deal of export of timbers from other parts of the world, which can be incredibly expensive. And, you know, what you're finding is the native species are also expensive because they are so heavily protected and you just can't get that, get them. What we are seeing, however, is individual makers who are looking into the smaller stocks of native species and using them. And the, the general consensus from this podcast is just don't make crap. Like if you're using such a precious resource, use it right, use it well, you know, don't take the species it's hard to get and turn it into something that ends up in a landfill in five years, make something that lasts 20, 30, 200, 300 years. And I think that's a, it's a great idea, but what that speaks to is kind of what I was alluding to at the end of this monoculture thing. In a world where, say, the population density is half of what it is now, you can get away with that further. But with such a high demand for building materials, it's very difficult to say use only local materials, especially in a place like Australia, where local materials are being heavily protected. Now let's look at a much, 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 much larger market like North America, which let's be honest, I can speak to a little bit more authority. Australia, I'm, you know, as ignorant as a lot of folks, because I personally don't do a lot of trade in Australian timber. Um, I've done some research and I find it very fascinating because it's kind of a, a, a microcosm look at some larger lumber markets. The North American market is now beginning to turn its head back toward domestics a lot more. Um, as I said, for uh, geopolitical reasons, for environmental reasons, for supply chain reasons, um, and certainly cost being at the root of all of those reasons, all of those factors serve to drive the price up. Now, there's also lots of ethical and environmental concerns, but those things drive the price up as well. Um, the U Ukrainian conflict is a perfect example, as we talked about in the beginning of this episode. So as North America begins to look more at domestic species, it is also finding that there's a lot more protected land than there was when there was very little import of timber to North America. Um, you know, North America has long been an export heavy when it comes to timber. I talked about this in the Thanksgiving episode about how the pilgrims were lumbermen. They came over on the Mayflower and they had a certain number of lumber guys that were there to to essentially scope out, fell, and send trees back to the Mayflower Company because the timber in North America was highly sought after in Europe. So really, from the colonial period till now, it's been all about pushing this material offshore, cutting these trees down and using them as export. Well, you know, there's been mistakes made, absolutely. When you look at some of the felling practices and before silviculture was even a word, there was a lot of bad, unsustainable practices being observed. That has changed in large part, but also there has been a lot more focus on the protecting of this land, protecting of these trees, and, and higher regulation on logging. So now there's this surge in demand for, nor for domestic products, and we look at the infrastructure, and we look at the availability, and it's not what it used to be. So we have to be a little bit more creative in our sourcing, but also creative 
in making sure we don't waste this valuable material. There are lots and lots of trees being felled legally and for good environmental reasons that are being ground up and not used for lumber. Some instances, obviously it needs to be done. You know, mulch is a product. Mulch is something that's ground up from lumber. Paper is a product that needs pulp. Um, there's lots of many, many products that come from cellulose. I want to say wood might be the most diverse product producing raw material out there. The number of things produced from wood are just staggering from pharmaceutical to the construction industry. But are we using the lumber, the trees that are um, available to us, are we using it properly? And I'm thinking back to um, conversations I've had with some of these micro sawmills and some of these urban logging companies that strike up deals with civil and municipal governments who are removing trees along sidewalks and things like that because they're causing problems. They're interfering with the power lines or they're uprooting sidewalks or their root systems are causing problems to the buildings. So many of these municipalities are planning to remove and replant these city trees every 10, 15, 20 years. And there's a huge volume of trees being cut down and replanted, but those trees being cut down are just being destroyed. There's Certainly some of them, they're not going to be viable as lumber, but right now they're not even being considered as lumber. They're considered as waste. Drive along any highway in North America and you'll see stacks of logs lying by the side of the road because there's some highway improvement project being done. My neck of the woods on Interstate 95, as you move north from Baltimore, they're widening several lanes. They're doing construction to several overpasses along 95 there, and there are hundreds and hundreds of logs stacked on the side of the road. Many instances, people look at that and say, that's not valuable timber. It's not worthwhile being cut into boards. And for the global commercial demand, you know, you look at it and go, it's not cherry, it's not maple, it's not walnut, it's not oak. You know, there's no demand for that because it's polonia or, you know, butternut or several thousand different species of softwood. There's no commercial market for that. Therefore, it's not worth the time to saw it into boards. Some of that may be correct, but what's going to need to happen is people need to think more along the lines of why, who says that's not a good lumber wood and why are they saying it's not a good lumber wood? Is it because there's not a large scale commercial market for it because no one has asked or, or what, what is the reason behind that? I get questions from woodworkers all the time to the show about here's this tree. I hear it's no good. Is it worth me sawing it into a board? And as a matter of fact, um, I have a question, shoot, where'd it go? Yes, here it is. I have a question from Michael on sugar gum. And he says, I live in San Diego, California. There are eucalyptus trees everywhere. The local story behind these is that the railroad companies begin planting them here in the 1800s for the purpose of making railroad ties, only to find out the timber wasn't suitable. Um, we have a sizable grove of sugar gum. That's the eucalyptus he's referring to. A sizable gum, sugar gum variety on our property, and it aided them fell to improve the overall grove health. I couldn't bear to send these trees to the wood chipper, so despite the tree's reputation for poor lumber, I had them sent to a local urban mill. Uh, um, Michael and I exchanged several emails over the course of this, and what it really came down to is, he did a little bit of digging, discovered the railroad company said, this isn't suitable for railroad ties, it's bad lumber. 
Turns out that reputation kind of continued to propagate down through the years where lots of people said it's bad lumber. So when I wrote back and said, what reputation are you actually hearing about sugar gum? How many people claim that it isn't suitable who have actually worked with it? Michael said, um, I've heard multiple things from different people, but I don't know any of them that have actually worked with the wood. I even had two separate arborists tell me that, quote, it wasn't worth it to mill the trees. It left me wondering if the local reputation that's been established has prevented many people from even trying to work with it. I know my local mill has done some work with the tree, but I get the feeling they don't know it all that well or are simply a little reticent to tell me the whole truth, fear of losing my business. That's an interesting, that's another wrinkle to this right there. But the things that I've heard are the wood is extremely hard and will quickly dull your saw blades. There's a lot of natural tension in the wood and it shrinks a lot during the drying process. This results in a lot of warping. So he has several different articles he's found that go back to the, the railroad companies and things like that. And what it came down, down to is, no, they weren't suitable for railroad ties. Um, the natural tension in the wood probably made them kind of crack up and had problems when they were cutting larger railroad tie blanks, like six by sixes and things like that. So this reputation of, oh, it's crap wood kind of continued to propagate through the years to the point where even now there are people saying it's crap wood, but nobody's really, really worked with it. When you look up the tree and places like wood database or wherever, you'll see that claim in there that it's, it's hard and it dulls blades. Well, look at like 10 different species in wood database. I guarantee you nine of them, it will say the wood dulls blades. It's just something you see in just about every listing. Yes, wood dulls blades. That's why we learned how to sharpen, folks, because all wood dulls blades. Some of it more than others, but I think most of that comes out of commercial and industrial applications where you're running hundreds of thousands of board feet in a day. The fact of the matter is when we're talking about an individual use case, an individual woodworker, an individual cabinet maker that is building a piece of furniture or building a kitchen cabinet or, or building um, siding for a house, if you consider it one project at a time, it's amazing what, quote, bad wood can be used, amazing what shortcomings of a species can be overcome for that particular project. And what you may find is there are some, some projects that that particular wood is well suited for. So while sugar gum was terrible for railroad ties, it might be fantastic for tables and chairs. Um, you know, the warping and the tension that causes it to warp and dull or warp and twist won't be a big deal when you rep everything down to one and a half to two inches wide for rails and styles. That twist becomes unnoticeable over the course of that. Now, maybe the twist is noticeable over an eight foot length, but when you cut that board into three foot sections to make rails and styles, that twist disappears. The cupping disappears when you've ripped it down to a narrow strip. Suddenly, sugar gum becomes great for rail and style frame and panel doors. Um, and you can glue up different smaller staves into a panel, make a stave core panel like that. You may find that building a table, it works fine because the aprons and the legs are quite narrow and they're not very long and it ends up being great for a species like sugar gum. But for 12 foot long crown molding, Maybe not. Maybe that warp and twist becomes a problem. Maybe the dulling of the blades becomes a problem because now instead of running the crown for one particular room, you're running crown for a production program by, and you have to supply 5,000 linear feet a week to a millwork customer. So now the dulling of the blades becomes much more obvious because you're running tens of thousands of feet a week of that same species. And all the little 
workarounds, cutting around knots, replacing blades, changing out the molder head, all that adds up. And over the course of a 10,000 foot run, you may add two to three hours of time um, in prepping the material, changing molder heads, doing test runs, things like that. And your yield might be to, might not be to spec. You might have to cut around knots, cut around defects in the sugar gum, uh, um, netting shorter pieces of crown molding, and the spec for that customer may require 12 foot sections. So now you're you're defecting out the shorter sections, and your overall yield ends up being quite a bit lower, which means you have to use consume more raw sugar gum in the end. Finally, you know when the, when the bill comes due. The lumber mill, the millwork, looks at the amount of sugar gum consumed, weighs it against the amount they actually produce to send to the customer, and they they determine sugar gum is a bad wood. It's not worth it. Because in that particular instance, for that particular use case, it did not net a profit or it netted below the margin they needed to be. So now it's forever labeled as a bad wood and it's never used that way anymore. And if you dig close enough, when you hear somebody say that's not a good wood, you dig far enough a lot of times this is what you're going to find. You're going to find that that wood was just used in the wrong application. You know, certain trees don't grow that big. Um, certain trees produce a lot of defects. Certain trees have no defects whatsoever, and you can get really, really clean stuff relatively easily. So maple is a good example. You can get wide boards, you can get long boards. It's fantastic for millwork, but even the waste becomes usable. Even the shorter cuts that you had to cut out a knot becomes really usable because maple is fantastic for flooring. And shorter pieces, narrower pieces can be perfect for that. And it's super, super hard. So like more, a higher percentage of the maple log gets used than the walnut log. Cause walnut, very knotty tree, uh, lots of twisty grain, and it doesn't, it's terrible for long linear millwork runs, but it can be fantastic for furniture. It also can be great for flooring because of shorter, narrower pieces of the requirement. So it's a matter of fitting the species to the application. And this is where we need to go. As we push more towards domestics and we try to source locally, we need to be, we, meaning commercial woodworkers, hobbyist garage woodworkers, to large manufacturing companies and large millwork houses, we collectively need to dig a little bit deeper. We need to look for what is the exotic that we're using now, why are we using it, and what species could we replace it with that's locally sourced. Now, there's going to be some very difficult um, questions asked there. One of the reasons the exotics have become so popular is they're big, huge trees. It's real easy to get wide widths and super long boards with zero sapwood and zero knots. But how many people are buying, say, sapili or utili, and they're ripping it into narrow strips and they're painting it? You know, it's an exterior grade siding and they're ripping that wide sapili board into, say, four and a half inch face with shiplap for shiplap siding. And then it's primed and painted. You know, it's not bought for that red mahogany look color. It's bought to be painted. It's bought because it's a good exterior wood. What's crazy is the amount of material that's ended up being ripped. It's really easy to get super wide sapili. We rarely come across it because it is ripped to more common industry demanded widths, six to eight inches wide or sometimes narrower. And those are the boards that you see. So people will see this 24 inch wide sapili and think it's rare and it's not. They pretty much all start that way. They're straight line ripped into the 
with the boards that the market demands. Um, it's also a little bit easier to fill a container with six to eight inch wide boards. You can, you can make a neater Tetris pile than you can with a bunch of live edge stuff or 24 inch wide stuff. Also, you know, it's just, it, it's difficult to move. It requires, you know, different forklifts, different loading, different strapping, all that stuff. It's easier to go ahead and rip that board into something that the market's already asking for. So do you really need Sapili? You want an exterior grade species, that's fine. We have exterior grade species in North America. If what your finished spec calls for a four inch um, face, so you know if you're adding three eighths for the ship up on either side, you're adding three quarters. So essentially you're looking for about round up to about a five inch wide board. Your lengths might be a determiner, depending what your spec is, maybe nine, 10, 15 foot or based on your siding, but you can splice them together as well. You might find that the length spec can be worked around. But with that width spec, the five inches and exterior grade species, there's any number of North American species that come to mind. Add to that modern priming and modern finishing if it's gonna be painted. You know, you can take the lowest grade pine and make it exterior grade by applying paint. Um, yes, the maintenance may go up year over year, but actually some of the modern finishings are pretty amazing as far as their longevity and durability to the, to the elements. So there's a lot of things that can be made high quality exterior by adding finish. Now, does this go back to the idea of use the raw, the rare material it have to the best of its ability, make something that lasts hundred years? No, it doesn't. But let's look at the exterior grade species like white oak. White oak was used as shiplap and collaborate siding for a couple hundred years prior to the industrial revolution. Go to Colonial Williamsburg and you'll see it being used today as the reenactors use collaborate siding. Uh, it's all white oak. Um, the shingles, Red oak and white oak, same type of thing. There's any number of exterior grade species, both hardwood and softwood, that could easily net a five inch width, could be used for these species. So here again, what exotics are you using? What is the actual use case? And what kind of give do you have on the spec? What kind of workaround do you have? And start comparing that to the pricing, the availability, the, the shorter transit time. Um, all of that stuff could make a very compelling argument to look at your native species. So back to this, um, uh, oh, by the way, Michael, thank you for that uh, case study on sugar gum. I didn't know much about it. There's so many different eucalyptus in the genus there that uh, I, I kind of get confused by them all, but um, he did some great research on it and it kind of perfectly underscores the, the point I'm making here where people say, oh, that's bad wood, don't use it. I have another um, case study where I got uh, a polonia tree from a neighbor and, you know, great ring porous wood, super lightweight, but relatively strong, long thousand year history of that being used in tansu chests, super lightweight yet strong. So the Japanese merchants would carry their, their wares in a tansu on their back. Great case study for lightweight wood. Well, it splits super easily. I was able to rive it into blanks and I started thinking, you know, I'm going to rive this into chair parts. And then I started thinking, well, can I use polonia for chair parts? You know, it's no, it's no oak, it's no ash, it's not maple. It doesn't have that hardness to it, but it's known to be quite strong. I immediately was told by people, polonia is a terrible wood, bad wood, it's a trash wood, don't use it. I have been splitting and riving parts off of that log, and this was a big log. I took quite a few sections of it. Back to one of my more recent episodes, I kept it in log form, the parts I don't need, and here I am five years later and I'm splitting log sections and they're working just fine. But I've made several different stools. I made a perch stool out of it. Um, I've made some footstools out of it. I have not done any steam bending with it yet, 
but I've discovered that it actually makes a very lightweight and very durable staked furniture. Um, they've all been stools, um, shop stools, things like that. I've given them to several different family members and they comment on how incredibly strong it is yet how incredibly lightweight. Now, is it a good substitute for Windsor furniture? Again, not having steam bent it yet, it's hard to say, but when I first split those pieces out, like if you were to observe my Instagram account, for example, most people thought I should have just burned it right away. No way that could ever be used for anything. Get rid of it, it's total trash wood. And here, just in my tiny, tiny little use case, I'm discovering it's a fantastic wood. It's absolutely great for both flat panel cabinetry type work, but also staked furniture type work. I'm sure that I will find some limitations to it. It's, it's um, I haven't turned it yet. Um, I've uh, riven, I have riv, rived. <laughs> What's the past participle of, of rive? I don't know. I split out, <laughs> I have split several pieces and rounded them with a draw knife into turning blanks and kind of set them aside because they were sopping wet. Um, I have not turned them yet. I imagine it will turn fine. It might get a little fuzzy because it's so soft, but at the same time, from a strength and durability perspective, I think it will be just fine. But that's another species that you're immediately told, it's terrible, don't use it. I can actually remember getting a few messages on Instagram from noted Windsor chair makers who said, more power to you, use it. Great stuff, you know, go for it. And what you find is, you know, in that Windsor market, traditionally red oak, white oak, uh, used for the, the, the steam bent parts, hickory can be used for the steam bent parts or the spindle parts, you know, poplar or pine used for the seats because it's easy to carve, easier to get in wider widths. Maple used for the turn parts because you can get a little bit more detail in there. But I think if push came to shove and those species were not so readily available, I guarantee you some of the finest Windsor chair makers out there would be using different species. But let's face it, oak and maple are no short supply. They're inexpensive, especially in log form. So there's no reason to kind of go further afield. But say the Windsor makers were using exotic woods. They would look at those demands, needs to be able to be steam bent, needs to be turned um, and hold a fine detail. Think of like baluster turnings on Windsor chairs. Um, need something that's relatively easy to carve, but I can get wider widths for a seat and it's not going to split. Any number of species that would work for that. So, you know, there's a, another example. Now this is an example where we're already using domestics to foot that bill. But I think just about every use case where exotics are coming into play, there can be an example. Is it a domestic example that's commercially available? Maybe not. Or you may not be aware that sassafras could fit the bill or mulberry could fit the bill for that because those species are not being sold commercially. And because people further upstream have deemed it trash wood or it's not worth it, quote unquote, not worth it to saw that into boards. I think the more we get these micro sawmills, the more we get these individual guys with wood misers sawing anything they get their hands on, or guys, you know, like Michael who have sugar gum trees or like, well, you know, I'm going to give it a shot and sawing them into boards. Or even my last show, um, Alex building his Franken workbench, you know, he's been using an Alaskan mill for, for logs he comes across. The more we can get people doing that, the more it's going to translate upstream into more commercial um, operations, more quote, actual sawmills that will begin to use some of this domestic species. And we're going to find that they're perfect substitutes for some of the exotics. Now, you know, I work for a company that's probably 60% exotic because that's been the nature of the market. 
I think there's a great opportunity for us in domestics and there's a great opportunity for us from a social perspective, an economic perspective, a military perspective, a global geopolitical perspective, an environmental and sustainability perspective. But we have to be cognizant of not using just the same old species. So go to the microcosm, look at this and back to the Shops Tool podcast and look at the native trees in Australia. That's a tough one because it's these trees have often been labeled as crap because they're so incredibly hard to work with. But that can be a blessing. There, I don't know of an Australian wood that isn't a good exterior grade species. And there could be um, mechanization that could be used to harvest some of those trees and use some of those trees and work those trees into viable alternatives. Now, what you have to be cognizant of is once we allow some of that logging, is it going to get out of control with such a highly limited resource like we have in Australia? You have to heavily regulate the source. But there also could be more of a vested interest to manage that source and to replenish that source if we knew that it had a product that it would, could be made into. And right now, the idea of just banning the logging could be somewhat counterproductive. And that's kind of a controversial term. The idea is that if you don't allow any commercial products to be made from those trees, the trees become more difficult to manage. You know, if there's no margin to be had, who's going to pay for all the time it takes to manage that forest and let that forest continue to prosper? That, as I said, is a particularly controversial one. But you know, when you look at the outbreak of forest fires, because these forests have been left alone that were previously managed, you know, that's nature's way of managing them. But, you know, the problem with these forest fires is now they're in close proximity to homes. And we can't just let nature do its thing and clean house because it's going to end up causing loss of life and damage to property and everything. So there's a lot of different ways that we need to look at this long term. Can we use a local resource more? And how do we bolster the infrastructure? And how do we create markets for these products, these trees, that are trash wood or not worth sawing into something. We have to look a little bit closer. So this idea of moving more towards domestics, I think is really exciting, but it's going to require a lot of thought and a lot of retooling of our infrastructure because it's just not set up to consider, even consider these other species, these tertiary and quadrary species that are not in the zeitgeist of lumber. A lot of big scrabble words in that sentence. I apologize for that. So anyway, those are my thoughts on that. I'd love to hear thoughts from some of you guys. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for pointing me to that episode of Shop Stool. Guys, go listen to that. Great podcast. Um, multiple episodes in that podcast are fantastic. Listen, great to listen to pro professional furniture makers and how they're dealing with, with timber. So let's just answer a couple questions here that kind of fall into this um, same theme. Steve wrote in about cutting board wood and he said, I'd like to know how to determine if a species of wood should be used for a cutting board. Maple is commonly used. So there's something about it that makes it food safe. Um, so is there something about it that makes it food safe? Oak has large pores, so it's not suitable. There are a lot of woods in between the two. What characteristics should I be looking at? Um, I've looked at wood database, but nothing seems to provide the info I'm looking for. So Steve, I think you've answered your own question. You look at an instance where maple is often used. Well, why is that? Maple's really hard. Maple has tiny, tiny, tiny little pores. It's known as a closed pore wood. It's diffuse porous with super tiny pores. So you're not going to get little bits of steak and chicken caught in there. 
um, that density means that you can chop on it and you're not going to tear the thing apart. Red oak or any oak has big, large pores. So, you know, food products can get trapped in it. Also, as you're chopping, you can sever those fibers and get splintering um, because you've got a ring porous nature there. So really what you're looking for are species that are similar to walnut. So if you're unsure, look at the wood database, look at the hardness of, of hard maple. It's about 1492. That was the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Maybe it's 1450. I don't know. It's 1400 something. It's hard. Look at its density. Look at its pore structure. And you could use the wood filter in the wood database to find something very similar. And you run across something like beech. Um, that could be a good opportunity. It's also a white wood. It looks very much the same. If you wanted to find a different color of species that exerts the same diffuse porous nature, you know, it's a matter of using um, uh, the, the wood filter on wood database to find something with diffuse pores and look for, um, just look at the colors and, and determine from there. So you've kind of already answered your question by determining what is suitable. Mimic, emulate those particular technical properties and avoid the ones that don't meet that. Pretty, um, pretty straightforward, but um, something, I think a little bit of homework for you to do on your end to, to examine what are the properties of maple that make it good for cutting boards. Hardness, tight pores, practically no pores, and find that in other species and use that. Then I've got a question here uh, from Troy about sapwood. Um, this kind of goes back to the, what well, you have a log, now what? Um, Troy sent me a photograph of a log that had been bucked into some pieces. He said, I was listening to a recent episode and just had an oak tree removed from my yard. I want to cut it, but had a question. In the picture that I've attached, you can see the logs. My question is about the two colors and what's usable. Uh, when I start breaking these logs down into boards, is the outer brown layer something I can use or do I need to get down to the white wood? So imagine a log in cross section. And what we've got is this ring around the outside that's much darker brown. And then in the middle, you've got this kind of whitish cream colored wood. So what you're looking at there is sapwood and heartwood. Now you, may be, you might be getting confused and possibly Troy's getting confused because the sapwood is super, super dark. Well, this tree was just felled. So the one thing you can guarantee is that tree is full of water, 80 to 90% moisture content. And the majority of that moisture is going to be in the sapwood, the living part of the tree. So it is saturated with moisture. It's going to appear darker. The color of a tree when first split um, or sawn into a log, it's gorgeous, rich, rich color because it's super, super wet. Think of taking a dry board and applying, you know, throwing water on it, throwing mineral spirits on it to kind of pop the grain and see what it looks like. It's the same th situation here, but that tree is completely saturated with water. So that sapwood is appearing darker. Um, so what you're looking at that, what he calls that outer brown ring, that's the sapwood. It's absolutely usable, um, even though um, some people consider sapwood to be a defect. The issue you have to worry about with sapwood, that is the living part of the tree that's going to have a lot of moisture in it. It is technically a bit softer. What makes heartwood heartwood is the transport of tree waste through the medullary rays to the center of the tree. It's deposited there. That higher amount of extractive in the middle causes the wood to be denser, causes the wood to be darker. Um, so heartwood will in fact be harder than sapwood, but not like night and day difference. You'll find that the sapwood of red oak is certainly softer than the hardwood of red oak, heartwood of red oak, but not like half as hard. Um, it's not massive, massive difference. The issue with sapwood 
is that's where the bugs are going to be. That's where the sap is going to be. So the bugs are going to be there feeding on the sap. So if you have a log like that, you could split it, you could saw it, but you need to be very cognizant of there could be bugs in that sapwood. So what you really want to do if you have a lot of sapwood on the log is get it into a kiln. Dry it, raise it to temperature, and hold it there for 48 hours to kill off all those little beasties. And you can be certain you're not going to have you know an infection of powder pose beetle in your house because you built furniture out of it. That's really the only surefire way to make sure that those bugs are gone. There are lots of other ways you can think of when you have smaller pieces. Um, but when you're talking you know, long board links, putting it in a kiln or having someone dry it for you is really the best way to be certain. You can certainly air dry those boards, but you need to be very aware and observe those boards for boreholes and little piles of sawdust in, that indicate active boring insects. So yeah, absolutely use it. Don't be afraid of sapwood. Here is another example where we have to look at the woods we're using and think about what wood we're not using, what wood we're throwing out, and why are we throwing out? Could there be a reason for using that? You know, and the funny example is something like maple, where the heartwood of maple is actually darker brown, and it's the white wood, the sapwood, that we actually use for most of the maple lumber. And the stuff that's considered bad or defect wood is actually the heartwood of maple. So there's a perfect example showing that the sapwood is perfectly usable. In fact, it is the primary product when it comes with hard maple. Good question, Troy. I'm glad you, uh, you wrote in about that. Um, last one I have is from David on some cherry plywood. He said, I'm in the midst of planting a Murphy bed and was going to use three quarter inch cherry vineyard plywood, but I've already run into a couple questions that, um, I need help on. I'm in Southern California and my first question touches on pricing. I've checked out three different yards. So far I have a high of $115 a sheet and a low of $90 a sheet for cherry plywood. Each place carries a kind of quote pro core product. I was expecting high, but that seems quite pricey. But then again, a sheet of walnut around here goes as high as $140. Is my location likely affecting the pricing? Absolutely. Location is a major impact on pricing of plywood, raw lumber, or whatever. If it doesn't grow in your area, it had to come from somewhere and it costs more to get it there. In your case, walnut and cherry, not thick on the ground out your way. It's very thin, it's coming, most of the cherry is coming from the Appalachian region, the walnuts coming from the higher river valley or upstate New York or Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's coming a long way. Um, and those trees themselves, um, walnut and cherry, are not enormous trees. They don't have super, super wide widths. They often have a lot of defects. So the logs that get chosen for veneer, get peeled for, for plywood, very few and far between. Um, rotary cut is often not possible in those trees. And a lot of times they have to use a veneer slicer and do slip match on that, which is a more costly process. It also requires uh, more, more material to get there. So you can expect just that species alone is gonna be more expensive. It's more expensive for me living in the Appalachian region and finding the wood being sourced locally um, just because of the nature of the tree. But absolutely, when you then have to put it on a rail car or a truck and send it out to the West Coast, you're going to see even more. Honestly, $115 a sheet does not sound pricey to me for quality hardwood plywood, let alone cherry plywood. If you can find it for $90 a sheet, I would jump all over that. That's a fantastic price. Um, the second question touches on quality. He says the veneer lines on these sheets are quite pronounced. In fact, it seems almost unusable, unusable for any kind of large paneling. I wouldn't even want it visible on the side of a cabinet. Uh, he's attached a picture for reference, and I looked at this, and honestly, I thought, yeah, that's pretty typical. Um, 
it is interesting when you look at plywood, especially if, if we as like hobbyist woodworkers are used to agonizing over our, our glue lines and grain and color matches across glue lines. When you're talking about a mass manufacture process, and as I've already said, cherry is not a rotary sawn product. You're talking about sliced um, with like a guillotine slicer and then stitched together into slip matches or book matches or sequence matches. And they're not always that great. They don't really line them up. They're not taking time to line them up longitudinally like we might do in our own shop. And a lot of times they can be quite jarring. But at the same time, the application of a lot of these species is in smaller cabinetry where it can be ripped along those glue lines in order to create a panel. Now, you're always gonna end up with a section of say an 18 inch deep kitchen cabinet or a 24 inch deep base cabinet where that glue line falls across the middle of it. And, and that's going to happen. And you'll see that in a lot of instances. When you're talking about building your heirloom piece of furniture, that's probably going to be unacceptable to you. Whereas a commercial cabinet shop making hundreds and hundreds of cabinets a day, that's perfectly acceptable. What you'll find in the instances, the species that don't have large logs like cherry that have to be uh, guillotine sliced and those, those, slip pieces, the individual slip pieces are maybe six to eight inches wide, what you'll find is another product that will help you overcome those glue lines, and that is a quartered um, or rift sawn cherry plywood, where now, because you've got nothing but straight lines in that quartered and rift individual um, veneer pieces, the glue lines blend because it's straight grain to straight grain, and the glue line looks like another grain line, and it completely disappears because that is now, granted, those, those individual veneer pieces are going to be narrower. They may only be four inches wide at this point because just the nature of quartering a log, but you will find that as an additional product. You will find rift and quartered cherry plywood um, to give you those wide 24 inch wide panels that don't have visible glue lines. That, however, is a premium product with a capital P. So your $115 a sheet is probably gonna become 160, if not $210 a sheet. And you're gonna find that it's a lot harder to come by because the turn rate on a really expensive sheet like that is gonna be quite low. And your retailer doesn't wanna you know, foot the money for the cost and have it sit on their shelves forever and possibly warp and twist because plywood will warp and twist if you leave it out there for a long, long time. So what you're looking at is region, but also the species you're looking at. The cherry tree doesn't make wide panels. It, here again is a limitation on the species. If you wanted a wide panel, you're generally gonna look for a rotary cut piece. You're gonna get a more stable panel out of that because you don't have seams between within the, the veneer sheet itself. You've got one continuous sheet of veneer because it's been rotary cut, peeled on a lathe like that, and you get a more stable panel in the long run. Cherry, in order to be made into a stable panel, you've got to have a lot of money sunk into the core, but then you also have to have like the one in a million log to get your veneer quality grain, which costs a lot. And it is cut like a miser. So you've got tiny, skinny, skinny, little practically transparent face veneers to try to maximize the yield out of that log. All of that adds up to a very expensive product. Great question, David. Probably not the answer you wanted to hear. Um, and sorry it took me so long to get back to you on this. So you've probably not only bought the plywood, but probably finished the project like months ago, <laughs> such as the nature of me getting to clean out my inbox here. So with that being said, let me finish by saying thank you to everybody who wrote in and please keep sending these in. If it takes me a while to, to respond, I apologize, but I thank you so much 
for sending them in. So here's the, 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 uh, the appeal again. If you have questions, no matter how big, no matter how small, I will find a way to incorporate it into the show. Send me an email lumberupdate at gmail.com or fill out the contact form at lumberupdate.com. Reach out to me at lumberupdate on Instagram. Submit your question there. Heck, even send it to me on Twitter. I don't have a Twitter account for lumberupdate, but renaissanceww is my Twitter handle. You can find me there as well. I do occasionally play on that platform. Just love to hear your questions, love to be able to answer them, and I love just the different insights from really around the globe on on lumber. Um, if there are any Australians out there, I would love to hear from you on logging bands and what kind of native timbers you're using and what uses you found for your native timbers. Heck, anybody around the globe, Europeans, I want to hear from you. You know, uh, Indonesians, love to hear from you. Canadians, eh, not so much. Just joking, joking Canadians, please. I want to hear from you as well. Actually, I would love to hear from Canadians about this idea that Douglas fir and Alaskan yellow are starting to um, muscle out the Western red and what that's actually meaning, especially now that 25% of Canadian sawmills have closed on the back of COVID. I'm going to talk about an infrastructure problem. Anyway, that's a topic for another time. Thanks for listening, everybody, and go buy some lumber before it gets any more expensive. <laughs>